for a few minutes before, this morning before we got into God's Word. I, during our community lifetime, I'd kind of tell you a little bit about church in the park and, and how we ended up there, because I do think it's an important part of our history and, and who we are as a community, um, to understand why we do church in the park, why it's important to us. Those of you that have been, you recognize it's a huge part of, of who we are and an expression of how we love people, which is, is kind of where we're going in our, in our message today anyway. But on June 28th of 2009, when, you know, just a few short weeks after we planted this community, we had a day conflict with Will Rogers. I mean, we only rent this space. So, you know, when they have something booked way in advance, then, you know, we, we're out. And so we, we kind of looked at those dates, and, and there was a conflict on June 28th. And we started thinking, well, I guess we can cancel worship, or, you know, we could do something else. But we started really thinking, our leadership team really started thinking about, what if we just did something public, really out there, and just invited the world to come? And so uh, we looked over at, uh, I think it's Memorial Park, right on the corner of 36th and Classen, kind of right that way. And we said, you know, it's close. We'll go there. And we called the city and, and we lined up a permit right over there by the Boys and Girls Club. And we were going to just do worship in the park. And we started calling it a neighborhood celebration. We were just going to get together, do church how we would normally do it, and have a big picnic and call it a neighborhood celebration and, and invite everybody to come. And so we were getting all our things together and we were making flyers and we were going door to door. And I got a call from one of the, the people in the Parks and Recreation Department at the city. And he said, hey, listen, there's been a, an oversight. Um, technically, you have the park reserved, but somebody else is already going to be there. And we were like, oh, that's fine, no big deal. You know, we're, not, we're not looking to have a, just a ton of folks. And he goes, well, technically, it's, it's going to be a lot of people. I said, okay. And he said, it's the Oklahoma City Gay Pride Festival, the parade and all that. It's going to be there that weekend. And, and I started thinking about the flyers we were passing out, and they were saying, come to our neighborhood celebration in the park. And I just started thinking, maybe we don't want to make that the big thing that we're going to invite everybody to right now. And so I was thinking, so I said, Lord, we got all this stuff done. I mean, what, do we, what should we do? And, and so I just got in my car. I just started praying. I go, God, just lead me to where you want us to go. And somehow, the Lord led us, and just really we ended up at this park right off 23rd Street. We didn't know anybody. We didn't know anything about the community. It just felt like God was telling us to go there. So we called the city, and they put us, gave us a new permit, and we just showed up with a tent and a porta potty and a bunch of chairs, and we had church. And it was unbelievable. I mean, we left that day after having this picnic realizing that this is really who we want to be, that we, want, we don't want to be a church that's tied to a, a venue or a place, but that we exist and live in the community. And, and that day has begun this long relationship with that um, area, that part of our community. We do Bible study down there, we pick up for church down there, and we've been back four times since, or will be four times since, as part of our regular expression of worship. Every time we go back, I think, man, this is organically what I mean what I really believe it means to be the church we invite the world to come we share food together and we just worship God in the park in a place where nobody else will go I mean it's not a great part of town you know we've got people that are, that are living on the streets there we've got we've got drug addicts in the area we've got all kinds of things that are happening down there and we just show up and we say Jesus loves us this much and we do church in the park so if you've got plans next weekend and, and you've got something you're thinking, you know, maybe I'll miss church. This is the one Sunday we just challenge everybody to show up. I don't, you know, if you don't come here, that's fine. But go be a part of our expression as we celebrate what God's doing in the park. And we're going to do uh, worship just like we normally would, church in the park at 11. And then we're doing a free picnic. Bring something. Bruce is going to be cooking hot dogs and frankfurters. And, and uh, we're going to have just a great picnic. Bring something to share. But really be prepared to engage people on a totally different level. Um, 
and say, you know, what if the church really looked like this all the time? If we lived as a sort of outward expression of what it meant to love people. And that's really our heartbeat for church in the park. And it's really become just this huge part of who we are. Um, we always ask ourselves when we leave, we should be doing this really more often. Um, Thursday of this week, we're going to be passing out flyers in the neighborhood. We go, we take these little flyers and put them on doors. We talk to people and invite them to come to church. I recognize that that's not in everybody's wheelhouse. Like, that's not your sweet spot. It's not my sweet spot either. We just do it because we want people to come. So if you're free at 5.30 on Thursday, we're going to meet at Good Home Park. The map is right there on the thing that you were handed out when you came into church. Um, we're going to meet down there at 5.30. We're going to split up into groups of like four, and we're just going to walk around the neighborhood and hand out flyers. It's really simple. You don't have to do anything spectacular unless someone says, hey, what are you doing? Then you have to actually tell them what you're doing. If not, you just put a flyer on the door. Pretty easy. But if you're available, we'd love for you to be a part of that process. So... Um, huge part of, of who we are, which really segues into what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, you know, we're in the middle of this parable series. We're actually in week four of, of a series that I've just simply called Life in Parable, which is an, an exploration of the parables of Jesus. And we know that Jesus oftentimes taught in these parables, and many of us have been raised to think that parables are simply metaphorical analogies, or they're somehow kind of like heavenly stories that are supposed to relate here on earth. And and that's certainly true, but really parables at their very core are about life. They were told by Jesus to direct people in how to live their life here and now today. They're complicated, they're simple, they're authentic, they're real, they're, they're an expression of life. Um, and I believe that they're really called to challenge the hearer, which is, is you and I and those people that would be listening to the words of Jesus, to rethink life and to be challenging them towards action. And so we're exploring these words of Jesus together over the next few weeks, and we're right in the middle of this series, and we're talking about a really famous parable this morning, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which most of us on any level are, are uh, at least, you know, we at least understand it a little bit, even by the title alone, because it's used for all kinds of things. But really, it's an expression of what it means to truly love. And somebody pointed out, I think it was Kelly Brewer actually pointed out, that on the back of your bulletin today, she was super interested in the sermon, because the sermon title looks like it says, To Truly Love Treb Prater. And so, I mean, that's a series for weeks and weeks and weeks we could preach. But uh, technically, we're not, I'm not going to be teaching you how to love me, although I could use it, right? Um, we, uh, we're going to be doing something a little bit different about what it means to truly love people, to love Jesus with our life. And love people is an expression of that. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Seems like we're in the book of Luke, book of Luke a lot. Jesus, a lot of the parables are recorded in the book of Luke, and um, he just does such a great job of telling story. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 10. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and find it. Um, verse 25, right above it, it probably says the parable of the good Samaritan. Before we open God's word together, let's pray. Lord, we thank you just for the opportunity to take a breather from, from really from uh, life and things that are happening to dive into your word. And the truth is, for some of us, this is the first time we have opened your word this week. This is the first time, God, that we are, are sitting down with your word. Um, Father, for other, others of us, it may be every day, but what a great opportunity to sit here in community and open the word of God together and just say, God, teach us. Lord, we recognize that this parable is one that we're familiar with, we've been told about, we, we, we may think we have a handle on it, and, and that's certainly so. But God, we just ask that you would teach us something new today. Just pray that in your heart. Just say, God, teach me something new today about who you are. 
pray for someone beside you or behind you, even if you don't know their name. Just pray that God would move in their life. Father, we pray that you would make your word come alive to us. We know that it's living and active. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we pray this morning that you might teach us and instruct us in your word as we listen to these words of Jesus. We ask that we might find our own life in this parable. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Luke, chapter 10, Jesus records, or Luke records Jesus' words in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it says this, verse 25, chapter 10, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said this, a man was going down to Jerusalem, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed him on the other side. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine and put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, the he, said to, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when, I, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know, it's, it's a parable that we're all really familiar with. I mean, we've probably heard it a dozen times or more or, or, or hundreds of times even. And we're familiar with the title. I mean, it's really used in even our culture today. Being a good Samaritan, you know, it has this kind of tone of mercy to it. And being a good Samaritan really means you have mercy on people around you, maybe with no kind of um, expectation of return. But what we see in this parable is really interesting. Um, and it's not that uncommon a scene at first, because oftentimes we saw and see Jesus standing around engaging people in dialogue. I mean, this is what he did. He would show up in a place, he would engage people in dialogue, and oftentimes it would be with these religious Leaders, He would engage them on their level talking about law or talking about God or spiritual things. And, and in this picture, we see him engaging this expert of the law. We're not sure if he's a Pharisee or a scribe. Chances are he's one of the two. But he's an expert nonetheless, which means he knows it, he's memorized it, he's, he's created his life to live in it. And he's going to test Jesus. And so he says, Jesus, or teacher, right, rabbi, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus kind of returns the question with a question, and he says, well, you tell me, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the man replies with, you know, that phrase that really comes out of the book of Matthew as well, which Jesus used to reply to the same question. You know, what is it to inherit eternal life? And the man says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is really just a, a blending of two Old Testament commands. It's a blending of, of a command out of Deuteronomy 6 and one out of Leviticus 19 that talks about really having this love for God with our heart and our soul and our mind and putting it into a tangible way of living. And Jesus replies, you're right. 
That's exactly right, which Jesus almost never replies that way to the Pharisees, right? But he says, you're right, okay? He says, do this and you'll live. And so the man says he wanted to justify himself, whatever that means, just wanted to say, who is my neighbor? In other words, who do I really need to do this to? What does the law say? And so Jesus basically answers that question with the parable. Instead of just telling him, he answers it with a story. And he tells the story of the good Samaritan, the one that we're all familiar with. And I want to point out a couple things about the parable before I really get to where we're going because I think it's important for us to understand. But we got to know that there, there is this road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho. And Jerusalem is a city on a hill. We know it's built on this mountain. It's about 2,300 feet above sea level. So it's, it's pretty high for the area. And, and Jericho was a city down by the Dead Sea. And it was about 1,300 feet below sea level. So there's about 3,600 feet difference in the two cities, and it was a pretty short distance. I mean, in the Middle East, nothing is really that far away from each other in relation to Israel. It's a pretty small country. So, you know, it's 12, 15, 20 miles max, and it kind of descends down towards the Dead Sea, and it's a, a windy road with lots of cracks through the mountain, or lots of like crevices through the mountains, and it was like a perfect place for, for robbers to hide. And it was notorious. It was a notoriously dangerous road. So everyone would have been familiar with the idea of this road, and they would have been familiar with the idea of robbers on that road because it was a great place to hide and kind of spring on a caravan or on an unsuspecting person and, and rob them of all their things. So Jesus says there was this man, and he was walking down this road, which is kind of an interesting scene because you really didn't travel that road alone, typically, although every person in our story travels the road alone, at least as far as we know. But this man gets beaten, and he gets robbed, and he's left for half dead. So, you know, some of us may be thinking, well, he's traveling alone. He kind of got what he deserved. Maybe. Maybe Jesus is just making a point. But nonetheless, this man is traveling this notoriously dangerous road, and these robbers jump out, strip him, and beat him. Not only did they take his wallet, but they took his clothes and left him half dead. In other words, just to die. And so Jesus introduces three characters in the story. He introduces a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. We're all pretty familiar with how it goes, but let me give you a word about each of these folks because it really is important. The priest comes walking down, and when he sees the man, he crosses over to the other side of the road. The Levite actually arrives at the place where the man is, and then he crosses to the other side of the road. So, so what is the deal with a priest and a Levite, and, and who are they? And, and some people may even say, aren't they the same? I mean, aren't priests and Levites the same? Well, there is an important distinction about these two people and really why Jesus would have used them. Now, Quick Old Testament lesson. I wish we had a ton of time because I'd love to go into it. But really the $2 version of the worship life of Israel is this. There were 12 original tribes of Israel, and one of those tribes is the tribe of the Levites. The Levites were the, order of, uh, the tribe that was ordered by God, chosen by God, to take care of worship in the tabernacle. They were chosen by God to do all the things that Israel would need to do to worship God. They worked and served in the tabernacle. They were there and... and doing all the things that it took to do life. Out of that Levitical tribe was a family by, of Aaron and his sons. And Aaron and his sons were chosen by God to be priests. They were the ones that were chosen by God to do sacrifices and to actually lead in worship. So the Levites were temple helpers, tabernacle helpers. They kept out the riffraff. They helped pack things up. They really took care of the daily operation. But the priests were the ones who actually sacrificed and lived this sort of temple worship for the people of Israel. 
So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Only those that came from the family of Aaron. Now, I know most of you don't care, but it's kind of important. Because what Jesus is setting up is he's saying a priest. Someone who is in charge of the worship life of Israel and a Levite. Someone who also was very important in partaking in the worship life of Israel. Both were sort of the hierarchy of worship. They were the picture of Jewish religious worship. And it wouldn't be uncommon at all for a priest to be going down that road because there were a lot of them. And by all accounts, by most accounts really, priests served about two weeks a year and they lived in all the surrounding areas. They'd be going up and back. When they weren't serving, they'd be going to, to the temple and back. But, but they lived in these surrounding towns. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon for these guys to be traveling at all. But all that to simply say, they were really important in the worship life of Israel. So Jesus is telling the story and he's saying, take your worship leaders. You got a priest who saw the man laying half dead and crossed the other side of the road. And you got a Levite, another worship leader, who walked up to the place where this man was. Then he crossed to the road and he kept going. So, you know, you're hearing the story, you're getting the idea that the religious leaders didn't want to have anything to do with this dead guy or this half-dead guy. But then a Samaritan, Jesus introduces this other character, a Samaritan happens on the place where this man was. Now, in order to really grasp this, we have to understand the, the, the hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Well, really, it was, it was mostly one-sided. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And they hated the Samaritans. This is another long story, but really, they hated the Samaritans because they were, they, were, they, were, they were sort of a mixed race. Because when the Assyrians conquered the Northern Empire, the Jews that were in the Northern Empire intermarried with them. And they produced offspring that were not purely Jewish. And the Jewish people from the South hated them for it. And they had this ongoing feud for centuries with the Samaritans. They wouldn't even step foot in their land. In fact, oftentimes in the New Testament, we see people walking 15 miles out of the way over the Jordan River just to get around Samaria so they didn't have to put their foot in it. They wouldn't do business with them. They wouldn't spend any time with them. It's why it's remarkable that we see Jesus cutting right through Samaria all the time and having this incredible encounter with people like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Because nobody else did it. Jews wouldn't associate with them. So if you're the expert in the law and you're hearing Jesus tell you that your religious leaders wouldn't have anything to do with this guy, and then the Samaritan who you hate stopped, took him up, put him on his donkey, bandaged him, put some oil and wine, because apparently that fixed you up, and uh, took him to an innkeeper and took care of him, would have made you frustrated. You'd have been listening to this saying, okay, so what are you getting at? Jesus wraps this up by saying, who do you think was the neighbor to this guy? And he says, well, you know, of course, the one that had mercy on him, right? I mean, Jesus says, yeah, you've answered correctly. Now go and do likewise. You know, there's a lot of questions around this parable, and we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks really unpacking it. But like all parables, we come to the end of it, and we have to say, what is Jesus really saying? I mean, really, what is he telling us? I mean, is it, a, is it a parable about neighbors and about having mercy on people? And, and when people are in trouble, we help them do things like fix a flat tire. I mean, is it really about who my neighbor is and how we, we interact with people? Probably and, and possibly. At the, in the middle of it, though, I think there's a much more difficult question that we have to wrestle with. And it's really a question about love. Now, if you remember the expert in the law's original kind of statement, he says, you know, um, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think you do? What does the law say? And he says, you love God with all your heart, soul, and your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, really at the core of this parable is what it means to truly love, to truly love God and to truly love my neighbor or to truly love people. 
Now, I've heard sermons and sermons and sermons preached on the who is my neighbor question. And for me, I mean, it's a good question, but it's really pretty easy. I mean, if you look at the parable straightforward, really our neighbor is pretty much anyone at any time. I mean, we have no rec- understanding or recollection that this Samaritan person knew this guy at all. He just happened to be a stranger. He was walking down the road, and he sees this guy beat up and dying, and so what does he do? He takes care of him. He's his neighbor. I mean, the answer to who's my neighbor question is everybody, anywhere, at any time, period. Once we get a hold of that, once you're okay with that, frankly, the real difficulty begins. And that is, what does it mean to truly love this person? Because I can identify my neighbor. I can do it geographically. I can do it from a a social standpoint. I can do it just from the fact that I see you. I can call you my neighbor. But what does it mean to really love you? And this is where the question gets really hard. Because in order to really deal with this question, we have to deal with the idea of cost. Because a loving people is costly. Loving people is costly. I mean, even if we look at this parable and we see what it would have cost these guys and what it did cost these guys to have cared for this person, we recognize that loving people is not just something we can identify, but it's something that we are called to do, and it is very costly. Very costly. I mean, let's look at that parable for a second. We look at each of these guys, and there's a bunch of costs we can see in here, but I've kind of isolated a few in my head that I think I'll pull out for this morning and, and, and just talk about them a little bit, because I do think it's important that we can identify our neighbor. That's great. But what does it really cost me to actually love people? And it's a question that I want our community to come face to face with every single day. Because loving people is costly. It has a social cost to it. Do you know that if this priest would have come in contact with this half-beaten dead man, let's say he was dead, if this priest would have touched him, he would have been ceremonially unclean for seven days. Meaning this priest couldn't have participated in the worship life of Israel and he couldn't have been socially around anyone else. And it's one thing for an ordinary Jewish person to be declared unclean, but it's another thing for a priest to be declared unclean because you don't recover from something like that. It was a huge social consequence. So maybe if this priest would have happened over to this guy and he would have touched him or he would have been dead, it would have cost him socially. I mean, there's a real reality to that. Maybe the priest crossed over to the other side of the road because he, he was going to something really important worship-wise and he just didn't, have to run the, didn't want to run the risk of being unclean or more so, he didn't want people to associate that stigma of being unclean with him. And really, in our own lives, loving people is socially costly. I mean, what are people really going to say? I mean, they really know that I hang out with a homeless person or they really know that I, I, I'm spending time with this, this guy after everything that he has done in his work life that I would actually still invite him over for dinner with our family. People listen to their mouths talking about me. Do I really want to go through that? I mean, honestly, loving people costs me socially because not all people are easy to love. I mean, Meredith and I had the privilege last night to, to finally get a chance to go out to dinner. Sweet Rhonda kept our children for us, and I took the lady to dinner, and we went down to Cheevers on 23rd Street, which is like my neck of the woods. My people live down there. And so we're sitting at Cheevers. We're sitting on the patio. Weather is beautiful. And sure enough, rolling right by goes Jimmy. Now, some of you guys know Jimmy. You've seen Jimmy. Jimmy is, he's a kind of in and out of our community. Some of you met him because he stands on Western sometimes and directs traffic. Um, kind of older African-American gentleman, white hair. I mean, Jimmy is an addict. He is a crack addict, and he is a mess, and he doesn't mind if I tell you that because his life is a mess. Jimmy's homeless, has a shopping cart, lives down there. 
Now, Kayla and I were talking this morning, and, and when Jimmy's good, when he's sober and clean, Jimmy is a great man. But when Jimmy's not, he's crazy. And, and that's just the nature of um, the addiction, the enemy that runs through his veins. But here Meredith and I are sitting at, at, at Cheever's, you know, we're, we're pretending like we're fancy and, and all that, and we're having a good time, and we're trying to, to remember who each other are because we haven't really been out in years because we have children and all those things. And, and Jimmy goes rolling by, just chatting away with himself right down 23rd Street. And I go, hey, look, there's Jimmy. And Jimmy's hair was up. Which means Jimmy's being crazy. When his hair's down, he's legit. And so I thought, oh, look, there's Jimmy. And uh, sure enough, about five minutes later, Jimmy comes back this way, and he starts coming over to where we are. And I, I look down at Meredith, I go, I think he's going to see me. And uh, she goes, really? And then sure enough, he was on a beeline. So to get this story a little bit longer, it is... Uh, a, a he- series of hedges between Hudson and Cheever's, the restaurant. And there's one tiny little sidewalk. And most tra- they, I think they do it to keep the traffic out so you can actually sit outside or whatever. Well, G- Jimmy takes his shopping cart and shoots right down in between, right for us. He's like, Pastor, Treb! Comes right down. Everybody else is sitting on the sidewalk. A lot of people there. It's crowded. And he pulls his shopping cart right up to our table, right? And I'm thinking... I mean, I could be mortified. I mean, would somebody be mortified? I mean, here you are, you know, it's like big federal judge over here, and they're talking about important things, and these people over here are some kind of really fancy things, and Jimmy's hair's up. He's like, Pastor, what is going on? It's me, Jimmy. And I'm like, I know, Jimmy. I was like, I was getting ready. So, you know, why don't you sit down? He had a shopping cart there, and they came running out, Cheevers, like five alarm fire was going on. They're like, hey, you got to get out of here, man. You can't stay. I'm like, you know, it's all right. He's like, no, no, I don't want to cause any problem. I'm going. I just want to say hi and tell you I saw you. He's like, excuse me. And he's pushing through people with his shopping cart. And, uh, you know, ordinarily, most of us live in an environment, we'd say, oh, my gosh, my social world's falling apart. Everybody thinks a homeless guy, he's going to hang out with me. We sat there and we just laughed forever because we thought, you know, we are so not cool. Like, we just don't, we're not, who are we going to impress, you know? And so Meredith and I laughed all night about the fact. And so I sent Ron a text message and I said, hey, you're not going to believe the three of us had a great dinner. She's like, three? I'm like, yeah, me, Meredith, and Jimmy. So caring and, and loving people has a social cost to it. It just does. And at some point in time, we have to wrestle with that because it's not always that we can just do it here. Sometimes our loving people world clashes with our social world, and it's costly. Sometimes people will look at you and say, I can't be around you if you're going to hang out with that person. If you're going to care for them after what they've done, can't do it. And there's a really a reality to that. You know, there's also a, a physical and emotional cost that goes with loving people. You know, if this... There's a subtle difference in the way the Levite and the priest encounter this person. And I mentioned it, but you kind of got to pick up on it. The priest, it's, the text says that it sees him from a far away or from a distance and crosses over to the other side of the road or passes by on the other side of the road. It says that the Levite happened upon the place where the man was, crosses over to the other side of the road. So you get the sense that maybe the Levite stumbled upon the actual physical presence of this person makes the decision to cross over and head down the road. Now, maybe there's a really practical reason why. I mean, a lot of times robbers and bandits used people as bait. They would take a person and they would lay them out there. You'd go over there to care for them, and then as soon as you got there, they'd all jump out and attack you too. I mean, you've seen that in the movies, or you're at least familiar with the idea. Maybe, just maybe, there was a real practical reason. When he got there, he realized that maybe this was a trap, and so he hustles over to the other side of the road and, and goes down. I mean, you can see that possibly there is that. You know, loving people has this emotional and um, physical consequence to it. When we first, about a year and a half ago, we first met these, these couple of homeless guys, Troy and George and, and One-Legged John. We can call him One-Legged John because everybody else calls him One-Legged John. 
He's got one leg. And we met these guys, and, uh, you know, Mike Brewer called me and goes, hey, I just saw on the news that they raided a homeless camp out behind church or Kentucky Fried Chicken over off, you know, whatever that was, 122nd, whatever that is up there, and, and Penn. And I said, well, let's go. And so he was like, I can't, but I'll go with you later. And so I said, awesome, we'll, we'll do that. But meanwhile, I'm going to go down there and just see what's going on because I was just curious. And so I drove down there, and these two guys were walking towards KFC. So I pulled over, and I said, hey, can I get you guys some chicken randomly and introduce me to Troy and George? And that really began a love relationship that our community had with some of its homeless population because we got and gathered things for these guys. And anyway, so we're standing in KFC and we're praying and we're, we're eating chicken. And, and I asked them where they're staying. And they said, you know, we're staying in the woods over here behind. And they gave me the name of the store. And they said, we're living in the woods back over there. And I said, hey, man, I would love to track you guys down, bring you to church, whatever. And they said, uh, yeah, sure. So a week goes by and I go and I pick up a couple of pizzas and I park my car in the shopping center. I just go walking in the woods. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in the woods and I'm finding like things from ho- homeless camps that had to be there for years and years and years that have since been abandoned and realizing there are a lot of people that live back here. And, and I'm back here in the woods and I'm way away from the car and everything else. I'm thinking, this is how I could die. I mean, this really could be it. I mean, I got a couple of pizzas and I'm going to get attacked. I didn't know these guys very well. I thought, is this a really smart idea? But then I just started thinking, you know, I just... I want to know these guys, and they seemed really great, so here we go. So I bring them these pizzas. I end up finding their tents. We end up sitting on these rocks around their tent, and we're just eating pizza. And these three guys and I begin this relationship that was really, it's pretty remarkable for my own heart. But there was the sense that this really could cost me physically. I mean, there was a sense that when we're walking around Africa last year, that there was a real sense that there's a danger to what we're doing and not from necessarily from bandits or from the LRA or from any of those things but from the fact that we're coming encountering with people that have HIV that are dying that have malaria that are stricken with all kinds of illnesses and that we're encountering all these things as we love people that we're holding children that are dying of diseases literally dying and there's a physical cost to some of that It doesn't mean we're reckless. It just means that sometimes loving people costs us physically. Sometimes it costs us emotionally. Loving people can be draining. It can be absolutely draining to continually have to be the support for someone who desperately, desperately needs it. It's costly to love people in that way. It's got a physical and emotional cost to it. It also has a financial cost. I mean, think about the Samaritan. What does he do? He stumbles upon this guy. He picks him up and he bandages his wounds by pouring oil and wine on it. Maybe that works. But either way, it was his own oil and his own wine and his own bandages. He took care of him. He goes to the innkeeper and he says, look, take care of this man. Here's two silver coins, which was kind of a lot of money. And he said, if there's any other need that this guy has, I'm going to pay for it. There's a financial cost at times to loving people. There really is. I mean, there's a financial cost to taking care of people who are starving. We can't just say, I'm really sorry that you're hungry. Sometimes we have to give food, and sometimes food costs money. It's it's one thing to look at someone and say, I bet they're freezing on the corner. It's another thing to go into Walmart and buy a coat and drive it over and take it to someone. That cost me financially. Maybe I don't get to go to lunch that day or whatever, but that person has a coat. Sometimes loving people is a financial cost. That's just just true. It doesn't mean we pay for every cost there is. It just means that sometimes it's costly financial. It has a financial kind of sting to it. Sometimes loving people is just inconvenient. It has a convenience cost. I mean, think about it. All these men were traveling this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's 20 or 15 miles. If you don't get off the road by night, you're certainly in big trouble. 
If I actually stop and help this person, how long is it going to take? I mean, what if I don't get off the road? What if I get caught up in this whole thing and, and he's really dead and then I got to take him to wherever you take dead people in those days and, and it, I get hung up and all that and then I got to find his family and I mean this is totally inconvenient. And the truth is sometimes, sometimes when we love people it happens at the most inconvenient times. I mean really right before you walk out the door to go to that meeting when you're all dressed in your suit and tie or all dressed in your business clothes that person calls on the phone or or you see that person on the side of the road with a flat tire and she looks like a single mom. And you look at yourself and you're in your suit. And if you're like me, you have one. <laughs> or you're getting ready to go out the door and you've been waiting for this thing to happen for two weeks and you're so excited, the phone rings and you look at it on caller ID and you just go, oh, I know if I answer this, it's going to cost me. So inconvenient. Loving people is costly. It costs us socially, it costs us financially, it costs us physically, emotionally, it costs us from a convenience standpoint. So why do it? I mean, really, why? If it's so costly, why do it? Well, there is a reward, but really, that's not what this parable, the picture of this parable is. It's not about feeling good and being better. We don't, we don't get any of that. So why? Well, if we go back to the expert's original question, it's their original statement, it says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, loving people is an expression of how we love God. It's one thing to say, God, I love you with all my heart, my soul, and my mind. It's one thing to say, Jesus, I follow you. It's a completely different thing to say, I want my life to show that. I truly believe that Levite and the priest were good men. I bet their hearts broke when they went by this guy. I bet they felt for it. I bet they weren't angry. I bet they didn't look at that guy and be like, I can't believe that. I bet their hearts were hurting inside. I mean, these were good men that led the worship life of Israel. But something else was going on, whatever it was. But it's the Samaritan, the one that everybody else hated, that stops to say, I'll take care of you. Loving God. Having a heartbeat for God means that we have a tangible love for people because that is how God loved us. Loving people is costly. Love that remains, hear me say this, love that remains purely emotional is not love. Love that remains purely emotional is not love. To love God, to truly love God, to truly love people means that we live a life and a love that breathes, that moves, that calls us to action that changes the way that we see the world. I mean, really, our whole community is wrapped up in our approach to life. Love God, love people, follow Jesus. It's not just some little contrite three-word saying because we want to be trendy and cool. I mean, look around you. We are not those things. It's straight from Scripture. Love God, love people, follow Jesus. This is who we want to be. These aren't mere catchphrases that the church uses to make itself feel better about itself. It's a call to life. Being a good Samaritan is not about identifying your neighbor and saying, I'm going to try and love the people around me. Being a good Samaritan says, I'll do whatever it costs me to love you with the love of Jesus. Because the love of Jesus has changed me. This is what it means to love people. To truly love people is costly. And once you kind of embark on that journey, you will never be the same. 
I mean, I'm telling you, once you embark on that journey of loving people the way that Jesus loves you, it will change your life forever. And I want us as a community, as a church, to be people that love loving people. That that is our passion and our heartbeat. Why? Because it's an expression of our love for God. I'm going to show you a quick two-minute two video, and you're going to have to strain your ears a little bit because in 19, 1865, a man by the name of William Booth started the Salvation Army in London. And really, it was a radical thing. I mean, the Salvation Army, most of us are familiar with. They run emergency shelters and drug and alcohol addiction programs and, and feeding um, um, kitchens all over the world. But it was a radical concept at the time. And, and William Booth was a radical in the way that he did it and literally called it an army of people that would have the same type of passion and energy to love people as a military army would about its own conquest and about its own survival. And he took that approach to how he set up his concept of what it meant to truly love people. This recording, you're going to see the words up here, but the recording was made in 1910, two years before he died. One of the only recorded speeches that we have from him. But it captures perfectly what I believe to truly be the heart of what it means to love people.